Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I'm great. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm doing okay. It's a kind of a rainy, overcast day here in Scotland, so it's appropriately Scottish weather, but you know, uh, good to be inside in a warm place with you. Right. Uh, so this week we are discussing two articles, one in the Atlantic and one in the New Yorker, that, that speak to, I guess, the status of the historical profession, uh, at least the, the American historical profession today. Uh, the first is by George Packer in The Atlantic, A View of American History That Leads to One Conclusion, which is a fascinating, It's in some ways it's a book review piece, but it's also an interesting indictment of the current status of historical scholarship. And the second a piece uh, by Emma Green in The New Yorker, The Right Side of History, how, histori- how Should Historians Respond to the Urgency of This Current Political Moment? Right. So Frank, you picked the the Atlantic article. I think I I added the New Yorker article. So let's talk with start with the Atlantic article. What was it about this piece that that spoke to you? Well, it, it's written by George Packer, who's who's a well known journalist, um, uh, and will be familiar to many of of our listeners. Uh, you're right, David. It's a review essay. The book in question that he, he that Packer makes his focus is. Um, Freedom's Dominion, A Saga of White Resistance to Federal Power by Jefferson Cowie. Uh, so we want to make sure we, we acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's about more than that because Packer uses this review essay to really kind of ruminate about the state of American history, uh, both in the broader culture and uh, among academic historians at the moment. And I think he raises some interesting points. Basically, he argues that we're in a moment of what he calls the new fatalism. He says there's a kind of fatalistic um, uh, sensibility at the moment. He uh, calls it the golden age of fatalism. Yeah, the golden age of fatalism. So let me just, if you'll indulge me and, and if listeners will indulge me, I'll just read a couple of sentences from the essay to give you a, a, a taste of it. And he begins, we're now living in a golden age of fatalism. American culture, movies and museums, fiction and journalism, is consumed with the most terrible subjects of the country's history. Slavery, Native American removal, continental conquest, the betrayal of Reconstruction, Jim Crow, colonialism, militarism, in scholarship works whose objective is to puncture our hopeful but misguided myths dominate. This mode of analysis doesn't just revise our understanding of American history, illuminating areas of darkness that most people don't know and perhaps would rather not. It also draws a straight line from the past to the present. Packer continues, uh, and I I have edited some of this, Mm. so so, um, uh, there, there are a few things I've left out. In a country world famous for constant transformation, historical fatalism believes that nothing ever really changes. The present is forever trapped in the past and defined by the worst of it. Mm. And Packer begins the essay by talking about the kind of more optimistic view of history mm. he was taught in school that you know basically was a kind of, he doesn't use the word Whiggish, but a kind of Whiggish narrative of, mm. uh, of American progress and that this has been replaced in the current moment by this golden age of fatalism. It should be said, and I think in fairness to Packer, it's, a, it's an essay that I can recommend everybody read. It's a really interesting essay. Mm. This isn't a sort of knee-jerk right-wing response against the new fatalism, mm. as he calls it. He actually says the, the book in question, for example, is excellent. Mm. And he says a lot of the scholarship that, that he's read in this area that, that um, uh, 
that that epitomizes this is is really really good. And he also acknowledges there's lots of material to work with. That the American past is full of darkness, but he he claims it's become its own dogma, and that 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 it, it's. Um, Yes, he says, what's striking is how eagerly the new fatalism crosses from empiricism, that is, scholars doing their work, to metaphysics. Um, what does that mean? Well, I was writes, curious about that line. In search of original facts, historians and journalists go digging where the ugliest facts are buried, and what begins in research ends in dogma. They aren't just looking to fill gaps in knowledge or going where the historical evidence leads them. Instead, they replace one myth, that myth of American progress, with another one, this new fatalism, mm. as powerful and even attractive in its way as the naive story of July 4th, 1776 being the fountain of liberty and equality for all. Disillusionment is as appealing to some temperaments as wishful thinking is to others. And I think that's an interesting insight. And, and David, mm. you and I talked a little bit off air. When I read this article, I thought we got to talk about this mm. because I think to some extent... We joke about our age difference. I think my education in history was very similar to Packer's. I don't know how old Packer is. But I think I he was born in 1960. Right. So he's older than me, thank God. But, <laughs> but not a lot older than me. Yeah. Um, and, and, but, but I, you know, I, I'm familiar with the sensibility he's coming from. And, and I think you're, I don't know whether you're a new fatalist or not, but I, I think you probably have a slightly more pessimistic view of the past than I do. Um, I think I was... I got the sort of the tail end of of, of of Packer's childhood's version of American history and, and had a transition at some point, um, you know, during my young adulthood about you know how we interpret the past. And and he you know, he, he describes this the what he, he was educated in and this sort of as you point out, Whiggish kind of narrative. He describes it as an optimistic narrative, reassuring, shallow and badly in need of a corrective. Right. And so I think he you know, he's he's not looking back, as you point out, not looking backwards at it, saying we need to go back and say how great George Washington is. No, he's definitely not saying that. He's de he's definitely, but he's he's arguing that the the new fatalism has kind of become a dogma unto itself. What was interesting, and there's a passage I won't read because mm. <laughs> I'm not going to read the whole essay mm. to you, when he talks about the kind of historical origins of the new fatalism, he said, you know, he's talking, he references the disappointments of the Obama years, the war on terror. The rise of Trump, 9-11, neoliberalism, et cetera, et cetera. The kind of, a lot of, the, a lot of things we've discussed over the course mm. of this podcast over the years um, that have kind of come together in the past 20 to 25 years mm. have kind of bred this fatalism yeah. uh, among historians and in the culture more broadly. And I think the Emma Greenpeace pairs very nicely. Mm. It's interesting because the Greenpeace came out, was published... The Green Peace, not Green Peace. Yeah. <laughs> Emma Green's essay um, was published in the New Yorker on March 7th, and the Packer piece came out on March 8th. So they, they came out at approximately the same time. Mm. Um, and she is talking there about an ongoing controversy within the American Historical Association, or uh, uh, which we might get to, about how about presentism and how historians should engage with the current moment. So, so we've got two things going on here. Let's talk about Packer first. Sure. So, 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 what's your what was your response in reading this? Um, so I think he's right in as much as I think that the nature of the historical profession has changed over the past, let's say, forty years, uh, in terms of 
the topics that interest historians, the way they approach the past, the, 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 the general modality of, of how historical writing takes place. Um, I think that's in part because the historical profession has changed a lot, who is in the historical profession and what their experiences are, uh, at least within, within the academy. Uh, it's much more diverse. It's much more, um, you know, coming from a variety of backgrounds than, than that would have been the case in, you know, 1980 or something. Um, I also think the world's in a very different place than it was, you know, when Packer was going to school. You know, the I think the 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 supposition that many people had in in the you know second half of the 20th century is is that 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 at least within the American context things are good and they're going to be getting better and we're making progress and um, you know that was the kind of narrative I was given in school like look we had these issues in the past but now we've solved them you know thinking about race it's like look we had slavery but we've that's over we had problems with segregation but we've now fixed those and things are only going to get better in the future and I think the experience that many people have had in this sort of post 9-11 world is actually that things aren't as great as we thought they were and they're not necessarily headed in a better direction and they're probably actually maybe headed in a worse direction um, and that you know our experiences and the experiences of our children are not going to be as good as um, you know the experiences that that our parents had or our grandparents had in some weird way you know that sort of you know standard of living is going to be higher for every succeeding american generation that's not a trend that's going on anymore um and i think that sort of speaks to the sort of you know if that's fatalism i don't know i'm not what, what do you think he means by i want fatalism? to push back i actually want to push you back i want to i want to push back a little bit on that david okay with, with some of the old fatalism <laughs> okay it's so the in, old fatalism in the, the different that, fatalism no well well the past wasn't all that great necessarily either mm. uh, uh in the sense that so so let me Push back a little okay. bit. So, mid twentieth century. Okay, the globe is facing existential an existential threat in terms sure. of the Cold War and the possibility, the real possibility of nuclear war between the superpowers. Mm. Uh, the civil rights uh, civil rights movement, of course, the aftershocks of the civil rights movement um, were still ongoing and often attended by significant and profound violence, mm. including in places like. Boston, when I was growing up, uh, or in, in the greater Boston area, um, there was you know significant racial violence, there was significant police violence. We had Vietnam, we had Watergate, we had widespread dissolution, we had stagflation. You know things. Yeah, this, all, all sorry, these let, let me finish, yeah. David. Um, okay. I think a lot of this is the narcissism of the present mm. among people who lack historical perspective, thinking this is a uniquely bad time. There are bad aspects of today. I, I think it. I, I think you know, mm. uh, we're not that special. I would agree in that respect. However, I think part of the the point I was trying to make is that people's visions of the future were often very optimistic in the mid twentieth century, right? Even when people said, "Look, things are bad now; they're going to get better in the future." Sure, the but but that's Packer's point. Yes, that we're telling ourselves yes. that, that this fatalism is is the story we've decided to mm. tell ourselves, and it's emerged as a new dogma. Mm. Um, but you know, perhaps it, perhaps we're overstating it. I, I think that's yeah. the implication of what he's saying. So you're absolutely right about that. I mean, the the narrative, and I got that narrative mm. in school. You got it to a lesser extent mm. of kind of general American progress and everything that was bad. 
So Vietnam, yes. well, that's an anomaly. That's an exception. We're better than that. You know, and the trajectory was onwards and upwards. So I agree with you mm. and I agree with Packer, Packer rather, excuse me, yes. that the narrative has shifted, the, the underlying mm. narrative. My point is that maybe we're, I agree with Packer that maybe we're overstating this. Mm. This has become a dogma of its own because of the uncertainty of the past generation. Mm. And maybe it's overstated. Yeah, I think there's a good. I think that's a good point to that. I mean, one of the things about the current state of historical writing in this vein, and I think Packer highlights this to some degree, is is people don't highlight heroes in the past anymore. People to look up to, people to admire, to the same extent that they did in the sort of triumphalist narrative of the mid twentieth century. Um, that that in in trying to look at the past through all of its warts and darkness and, and, and ugliness and to be sure there's plenty of that you know there, there's very little to to admire there's a line here in Packer's essay where he said he says punctured myths make us better students of history which I agree with but they leave little they leave nothing to live up to right that if we're if we're uh, the, the mode of historical writing is, is not about um, highlighting great acts of great people it's about sort of de demonstrating the ways in which power gets manifested to uh, oppress various groups of people and and destroy the planet and other kinds of things um you know what is there to admire in that um i'm not quite sure though that that i understand what he means by fatalism because i think that is the core of, of this essay um what what do you think fatalism means to him and how does that like what's the alternative well, I think, I think the way he's using it, and I think that line which I quoted earlier mm. about there being a direct line from the um, past to the present, mm. but that the present is unchanging. Mm. We're sort of stuck with, um, you know, if, and he, this is an example he uses, if police violence is a direct legacy of the slave patrol, mm. then we're kind of locked, stuck, stuck with, okay. like, it'll never get better. Mm. If everything um, has a history, and and therefore, how do you envision the future with a different set of variables? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So I think the fatalism is that we're stuck with this mm. kind of forever, and 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 it's as, um, I guess, teleological mm. as the old Whiggish view that where things will always get better. Don't worry, there'll be progress. Mm. Yeah. Well, he does mention two books in the end of. Uh, you know, Cowie's book is sort of the main body of the review. There are two other books he mentions at the end. Uh, Purdy's book, uh, Two Cheers for Politics, How Democracy is Flawed, Frightening, and Our Best Hope, and Timothy uh, Shank, Realigners, Party Hacks, Political Visionaries in the Struggle to Rule American Democracy, which he I think he points to as saying, look, here's alternative ways of thinking about how change happens and how a uh, future doesn't necessarily need to be shackled to the past. Um I mean, I think there's a here's the I think the connection between these two essays is you know I think fatalism might be another way of thinking of talking about presentism, which I think is one of the main uh, concerns in Emma Green's article about about the right side of history. Yeah, do you want to sum up about Green, and then we'll try to take them oh together maybe. sure. So so this is um, and we may have alluded to this in previous episodes. This is in large part about a, a uh, kerfuffle uh, within the American Historical Association. Uh, the the uh, 
uh, president of the AHA, which is the, the largest uh, organization for, for historians in the United States, uh, not necessarily of the United States, but in the United States, uh, is a historian by the name of Jim Sweet, who uh, teaches at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who wrote, uh, I guess it really started with an article he wrote in the AHA's magazine Perspectives, um, the Perspectives is their sort of monthly magazine, and they've got an article by the AHA president in each issue. And he wrote an article that that in some ways attacked the 1619 project that 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 was about his experience visiting a um, slave trading site in in Africa and about some other tourists who were there at the same time. It should and, be said, Sweet is a historian of Africa. He's a historian of Africa um, and the African diaspora. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, he was coming to that with a certain critical lens and he was concerned about, and this is the, the quote from the perspectives piece, certain narratives are harnessed for the service of particular political perspectives. For me, that's a dangerous trend for the historical professions to get drawn into. Um, and I think he's worried about history being used as a political tool and the ways in which academic history has become instrumentalized in in political debates and in which historians are attracted to questions and topics that are uh, of interest because of their relevance in the present not so much their relevance in the past and that that he thinks that's dangerous a dangerous direction for the historical profession to step into uh, there's other ways in which sweet's tenure as, as aha president been controversial there was a whole debate in the aha about Tenure standards in the United States, that is to say the standards for promotion, and the AHA as an organization was headed in one direction saying, look, a book isn't necessarily the only way of demonstrating that you're an important scholar and worthy of tenure, uh, that you should be able to have other kinds of, of scholarly outputs, whether that's public engagement kinds of scholarly outputs or, or, or articles in in, in non-scholarly journals and other kinds of and public history in a variety of forms and sweet sort of push back against that and say actually we really need to value the monograph as being the um sort of default standard for for tenure and promotion uh, and so it's about a debate about what kind of history should be written and how it should be written and you know is history as an academic discipline should it be uh beholden to its own sort of internal standards or whether it should be explicitly outward looking and explicitly presentist in its in its in its uh, mission statement um and i think that's a real big debate happening that's happening within the field right now about you know what is the the history you're writing for is it about explaining the past for its own sake or is it about explaining the past because that has some relevance to the current moment yeah um, i mean green asks i mean this or the the subtitle on her essay mm -hmm. so maybe she didn't write yeah. the subtitle, but is how should historians respond to the urgency of this current political moment? Yes. Uh, David, how should how historians should, well, respond to the urgency of this They should all form podcasts, you know, <laughs> that... No, they shouldn't, because there's, there's probably enough of those. And, um, we don't want to lose the few listeners we already got. Um, you know, I, I think history gets used in the present for so many political purposes and social purposes and politics writ large. You know, politicians use history sometimes well, sometimes often not well. The Supreme Court, some you know, cites historical precedents sometimes well, sometimes not well. Culture warriors of a variety of kinds, you know, 
site history as a, as a reason for doing and not doing various things. And, you know, I think as people have expertise and training in this field, I think we have a, a, a obligation. Maybe that's not the right word. Uh, well, at least we have a, a, a voice to, to, to articulate within that conversation, especially when people are talking nonsense, as is more often the case than not sometimes in these, these public debates about the American past. Okay. What do you think? Well, sorry, what you've described is the moment. You haven't answered the question of how historians should respond. I think we need to engage as often as we can in every place that we can in as much as... You know, I think there is a ongoing question about what is the relevance of our discipline? What is the ongoing relevance of, of the history major in the United States, which has seen declining enrollments uh, across the board in recent years? And uh, there's been some slight rebound in the past couple of years, but, but generally speaking, history enrollments are half of what they were 30 years ago. And, uh, you know, I think we need to demonstrate our relevance and why studying the past is, is a part of academia, why it's a part of public discourse. And, and so I think, you know, the kind of history that, that um, you know, where, where somebody is, um, you know, stuck in an ivory tower and is, is interested in some antiquarian piece of trivia, you know, for their entire career, I think it's hard to justify that at the current moment. Let me okay, let me pose a um, let me pose a scenario to you. I mean, because I think the decline of the history major is not the same thing as a lack of interest in history. I mean, history is uh, you know we can't escape history in mm. terms of um, popular culture, politics, the modern discourse. I mean, sure. his, history is a constant subject of of, of discussion. Mm. Um, you only have to travel and tell people what you do and and people are interested immediately i mean in a way that some of our colleagues in other disciplines in the humanities would envy frankly to be sure um so so the decline of the history major and the decline of humanities major is a thing but i'm not quite sure it illustrates the same point but let me let me pose a question to Mm. you which is what if you've got this all wrong and it's not the Ivy Tower historian who's writing books about her or his own thing that they're interested in that's led to the decline of the history major. But frankly, the intervention of historians in public discourse at every turn, so-called Twitter historians mm. and hashtag Twitter historians, for example, has so politicized and uh, history and made history fodder for the they, they've that that has fueled mm. the role of history in the cultural war, and therefore undermined our discipline. So one of the reasons we're we're losing majors, it's not Jim Sweet and his Ivy Tower writing. It's the esteemed professor so and so, or the esteemed graduate student mm. who has X number of followers. Mm attacking whoever the president of the day is for whatever reason and drawing a direct uh, line from their research to that. We have met the enemy and they is yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, I mean, what, the, the, I guess the question... And I'd include podcasts in that, yeah, by the way. So yes, okay. So we're, yeah, we're, I'm in a glass house on so, this. But, but. Um, I think the, the question that, that, that this article raises for me in this whole dispute with Sweden perspectives is, um, you know, what is presentism and is it 
bad for historian, right? And, um, you know, I think sometimes there is the tendency to want to say, oh, this particular historical event of the week really ties back to my research into the 17th, 17th century, and we need to understand, you know, whatever that thing is in the 17th century to understand today. Well, very rarely is that actually the case, right? right. There's not the, 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 the straight line from the past to the present that Packer talks about. That's not how history works, at least not in my understanding of things. There's, actually, we were in a seminar the other day where somebody did just that, though. To be sure. Um, just that. I think it's often a, a very wiggly line, and, and, and there, you know, I think drawing connections between the past and the present is part of what our jobs are as historians, and, and you know, making, you know, I think part of the, the job of a historian is to make those connections, but I think very rarely does A cause B over a long period of time in a space of, you know, many lifetimes and geography and all these other kinds of things. Um, you know, on the other hand, you know, the, the, the questions that have interested me about the past have always been questions that have been interested in me about the present. And I often haven't realized though that, that I'm writing about the present until I'm about halfway through writing a book. When I say, oh, I thought I was writing about the Civil War, I'm actually writing about Iraq. Or I thought I was writing about the Civil War, I'm actually writing about the refugee crisis in Sudan. Um, you know, or I thought I was writing about surrender. I'm actually writing about, you know, Afghanistan, right? Or, etc. You know, everything I've written um, has been in some ways inflected by what I'm seeing on the front pages of the newspaper every day. And, you know, some people look at that and say, "Oh, every you're a presentist. This is bad because presentism is a, you know, dirty word." And. Um, I couldn't find my compel myself to write about the past for things that were really kind of didn't have that didn't speak to me as having a broader relevance today, right? Right. I mean, I think that's really interesting, and I think presentism, as you've just defined it, I think we're all presentists in that sense. Mm. I mean, every, because the questions we ask of the past are mm. very much of whatever moment we're in. Well, the question that some people, some of us ask about the past. Let me finish. David, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> and and I, I think that's true. However, I think that's different from drawing that straight line. And I think mm. the presentism that Sweet was talking about, mm. and I think presentism in the Green article and New Fatalism in the Packer article are kind of the same thing. Mm. I think Packer's imbuing presentism with a certain... Um, uh, kind of certain characteristics and saying, well, the, the presentists are arguing for this. So I think to, to a certain extent they're interchangeable. And I don't think that's the same thing. So I think what you described in terms of your own approach mm. would characterize my own work. If I look mm. back at things I've written, they were of a moment. Um, and certainly the questions I asked of the past were influenced by the present. I think we all do that. I mean, that's just... Yeah. Uh, I think that's different from directly addressing the present in one scholarship. And I think that's what Sweet was indicting. Mm. Now, maybe he was creating a straw person in so doing. Mm. Um, but that that was what... So, so Sweet was making that distinction. And I think that distinction was lost on a lot of people who are upset about the present moment. I think they're also upset about the state of the profession and mm. the lack of jobs and the lack of tenure-track jobs and everything yeah. else. The AHA has been a target right. for lots of things. Right. Yeah. Um, but so, so I don't think Sweet's use of presentism is the same as yours. 
Uh, maybe they're not, right? And, and, and I think that, that I mean, the question, I think, is about how much, and I think the, the perspectives piece that he, that he, um, he was talking about, this goes into to some detail about this. You know, I think he envisions a version of history though in which we take the past purely on its own terms, right? And we, we, we look at, you know, what are the, the considerations that are important to the people who were living in the past, which may or may not be of um, questions that are of, of contemporary relevance. Um, and that we are limiting historical investigations as a consequence of this. Um, you know, and in, in my vision, I think there's room in the profession for lots of different ways of doing history that, that, that um, I think there's, there's room for writing history that is politically inflected and, and presentist using whatever version of the definition you want. I think there's room for kind of a more antiquarian to use another sort of uh, loaded term uh, in our profession for, for, for really investigating things that, that might seem like minutiae and are hard to explain to a, a general public, uh, you know, why they're important and why you're doing it. I think there's room for both of those things. Um, I think we're finding a hard time in the, the profession at the moment to try, trying to find room for all those kinds of things because they're both under attack and really. You know, the presentist is attacked by saying, look, you know, people are saying, look, this is not, this is advocacy, this is activism, this isn't history. So those people get attacked. The people who are doing antiquarian stuff or the sort of, uh, you know, things that, that don't have a current relevance, people attack that and say, why is this relevant? Why should this get research funding? Why should this be published if it's of, of doesn't it speak to these bigger, bigger themes and doesn't going to be marketable? Um and trying to figure out how to sort of, uh, you know, what's in the middle for the rest of us is, is quite tricky. Um, do you mean, what do you, you know, part of the, the article, I think, is, is really an indictment of, of, or an examination of activism and history and the relationship between the two and, and whether historians should be activists or not. Um, and, and, and sort of different interpretations about sort of where the job of the historian ends and the job of the activist begins if, if both of those can inhabit the same body. I mean, there have always been activist historians. Um, yes. You know, if you think about E.P. Thompson or Herbert Apthecker or Stoughton Lind, yes. um, Jesse Lemish uh, in my own field, um, but not all historians are activists. To be sure. Some, some activists are historians and some, some people are both, and mm. that's a pretty rare they're pretty exceptional in many cases. Mm. Um, I want to go back to the fatalism question, which I think is a version of the yes. presentism question. So I think I think they are related. I think I, I think, at least in my own mind, and for the sake of this argument, I want to, I want to posit a, something uh, which might be objectionable to you, David. Oh, okay, good. I'll flip over the table if yep. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> this is an American, in this context, it's an American problem. We have echoes of these debates in, the, in British history at the moment, and we see this working in Britain. But in the context of this discussion, it's an American 
historical problem. And it's a problem of the history of the United States and its antecedents. Mm. It seems particularly uh, focused on, on these issues. Um, as I see it, this is the debate over American exceptionalism all over again, just in a different form. And the way American exceptionalism goes into my way of thinking, and my, my way of thinking has been heavily influenced by being outside of the United States for three plus decades. There's a comforting right-wing nationalist version of American exceptionalism that sees America and the United States, I should say, rather than America, the United States of America, as uniquely good, mm. as a force in world history, as a force in the world, and having a uniquely positive history. There's a counter view of that, which sees the United States as uniquely bad. And I think the new fatalism is about that. And frankly, I think both views mm. are unbelievably parochial because they're often being propounded by people who lack international perspective. Mm. So the people who see the United States and its history, the new fatalists, to use Packer's frame, framing, as uniquely bad, frankly don't know enough about world history and they see the United States as, as unique and it's not unique. And my solution for this, this is my radical suggestion, mm. so, so, and I, th I think this is just the same old debate with yeah, it's, it's, it's old wine and new bottles. Um, my solution for this is to prohibit for at least a century United States citizens from writing the history of the United States. And that would include you and me. Oh, jeez. Okay. <laughs> so uh, You want to put us out of work, Frank. I do, okay. I do. But I want to create lots of work for U.S. historians outside of the United, United States. States. And so, so you, you know, one of the, the, the conceit of this podcast is that we somehow have some sort of perspective because of where we are. Whether we do or not, is I le we leave it to the listeners to mm. decide. They might just think we're two idiots. Uh, those things oh, aren't very That's why they're listening to us. <laughs> but, 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 yeah. And, of course, I'm exaggerating for effect. Hmm. But I think one of the problems here is it's too U.S.-centric, and it's Americans looking at their own navels and either seeing the greatest navel ever hmm. <laughs> or a gaping wound, which is the worst thing that's ever happened. I don't want to pursue this. Uh, yeah. uh, but, but, and, and this is a problem. I mean, I think one of the, 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 the fundamental things that we teach students about, about how you need to approach history is you need to sort of try try to the extent that it's, uh, that it's possible to to approach the evidence objectively, which is an impossibility, but but at least as a direction, you know, and that we should that you should approach um, national history or, or, or whatever it is, uh, you know, without an investment in the outcome of that. That there's a famous historian from the uh, early 19th century that you probably are familiar with who says the historian should have no country. That, that, that in order to be able to write effectively, you need to not be either, you know, promoting your own national interest um, or, or, or denigrating your country or what have you. Any, any, any idea who said that? Give me a date. Uh, it would have been in the 1820s or 30s he would have written. Okay, George Bancroft no. or John Quincy Adams? John somebody? Quincy Adams, yeah. who of course had a, famously had a country, like he was president of it, so you would think he has an investment. But also had a profound and long period of international, international experience, experience as a young man. Yes, he did. John Quincy Adams had international perspective more than... The vast majority of people. And more than most people who've served as president. That is without a doubt. 
Um, yes, that is that is definitely the case. Um, and, you know, and, but what does what does that mean to 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 not have a country when you're writing, and what does it mean to to sort of um, try to sort of take a you know thirty thousand foot view of things that, that that's divorced from these the 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 emotionality that that gets attached to to patriotism and other things, um, and that's very hard. I think you know both for people who are in the United States, but or, or people who are not Americans. I think it's it's hard to sort of look at things um, in a detached sort of way. I mean, right, it might be it's... easier for people who no, are not. No, no, no. I just I, for example, have read a fair bit of Scottish history over hmm. the years, and I have views on Scottish history, and my views on Scottish history are sometimes very different from those of our Scottish colleagues. Now, not everybody who writes Scottish history is Scottish, of course not, and nor should they be. Hmm. But I think that they bring a different perspective to that topic than I do. But I think my perspective is valuable. Oh, to be sure. That, 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 now, and, and, I, I think that, we're I'm not a there. professional there. I, I, I admit that it's not a field of expertise for me. It's a kind of field of interest. Mm. But I have I am a trained historian who's read a lot of Scottish history. And, and I could retrain as a Scottish historian, I suppose. But my take on it... And <laughs> Frank's some... second career as a Scottish historian. Okay, good. <laughs> the Treaty of Abro. Oh, don't even get me started. It's going to be on display next year. Um, <laughs> But um, I, I think you're right that 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 I mean I think we're actually more in agreement than than than, than, than you know it's uh, there is a real perspective that that sometimes gets gets lost within the, within the sort of national conversation. Um, because well, because it gets, I mean, so, so Quincy, John Quincy Adams' comment is a good one actually. No, I, I think I, it is. I mean, no, I, uh, but but I don't. So we talk about the historian as activist. Mm. I, I mean, I cited some examples of famous historians as activists, most of whom did not thrive in the academy. It should be said. Yes. <laughs> so activism and 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 the academy don't don't necessarily. Uh, some of them were even blacklisted. Yes, in that's, the right. Yeah. that's right. That's um, right. In fact, all of them have <laughs> significant <laughs> problems. Um, I don't think we're all cut out to be activists necessarily, or our activism takes different forms, and we all have different skills. You know, I, and Sweet acknowledges that. I mean, I no. think, um, and the AHA's new rules on tenure yeah. acknowledge that. I mean, um, our discipline and all academic disciplines are about two things, it seems to me. The creation of knowledge and the dissemination of knowledge. And those things are related, but they're not the same. And some people have gifts in one area, and some people have gifts in the other. And some people's strengths lie in one and not the other. And and some people just want to do produce knowledge. Yeah. And others really are great at disseminating and want to become public mm. intellectuals and so on. And we should be a broad enough church to allow for all of them. I agree. Um, I but I don't think that's presentism. I think that's just what we do. Well, but I think there's, you know, it figures how how you, you know when you talk about dissemination, what does that mean and what does that look like? Uh, I think there's a variety of different ways of of disseminating. The knowledge that is produced by by the by the academy to 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 broader publics, um, you know, some of which are more politically infused than others. Um, but I think both of these articles, I think they speak to uh, a, you know, a really. I think we're in a what, in retrospect, maybe it's a sort of turning point in the historical profession. I have no idea what direction it's going to turn in. Uh, 
you know, about what is the job the historian has, what is the purpose for which history is written, what is the political and intellectual ends to which the discipline exists, and what is the role of the historian within both the academy and within public discourse. Um, and I think both of the, the, these articles sort of speak to that that tension that exists at the moment that, that will be unfolding in the years. Yeah, although you, you use two you use two different words there, David. You talked about the historical profession yes. and the historical discipline. Yes. They're not the same. To be sure. They're not the same. And I think that's where some of this confusion arises. History as a discipline will continue to grow and thrive, I think. I don't know what's going to happen to us as a profession because I think the university, and mm. this is part of what engenders a lot of the, the pessimism one sees or the fatalism among professional historians, mm. academic historians, is the churn in the academy, the uncertainty about the future of the academy. Um, but that's not the same thing as the discipline. Oh, to be Which sure. Which direction it goes, who knows. History um, will exist regardless. If all the universities collapse and fall, history as a discipline will still exist, yes. What interests me about the Packer piece is his effort to historicize the moment. Mm. So we're not. I don't think the fa new fatalism will last forever. <laughs> so, so it's not fatalistic that the fatalism will. Okay, good. No, but yeah. you know, and he does provide a history. He says, "Look, it's a product of this historical no, moment." Yeah. I'm struck. We had a visit last week from the former president of a. Uh, flagship university in an American, one of the, in an American state. So this was the uh, visitor to Edinburgh, who, who was the uh, former president of a big tier one research university in the United States. Now it's a big job. Yes, it's and a it's, very big job. And it's it's an important job. And this individual, I had a long chat with them um, about a number of matters, including the current kind of churn in the academy and the crisis of the humanities. There was an article last week about the end of the history major in the, in the New Yorker. Mm. We talked a little bit about that. Um, and, and this person had some really interesting things to say about it. But one of the things they discussed was the current debates on campus about free speech. Mm. And to, to a certain extent, this relates to everything we're talking about today. Yes. Uh, what should be taught? How should it be taught? Do students need safe spaces? Are certain topics harmful or violent and so on? Yeah. And what this individual said to me is really stuck with me. And I think it's, it's, it's a good note to end on. It, it's, maybe the new fatalism will be replaced by the new optimism. <laughs> they said... You yes. laughed a bit when you said that, though. The, well, okay. they said, you know what? Students are really angry. And I had a meeting with some students who were upset about a free speech issue on campus, and they were very angry. And they came in to see me, and they talked about microaggressions. And they, they pointed out that their campus is huge, and so mm. they couldn't speak to all the students who were upset, but they spoke to 10 or 15 students. And they said that they spoke to them for the better part of three hours. Mm. And they said, the visitor said, well, once they sort of, told me what was wrong with me and explained um, all of my failures and the failures of the university for the first two hours. We actually had a very good discussion mm. for the last hour once they were tired. Um, but but this, this, this individual said something else that's really stuck with me, which is, you know what? The kids we're educating, the students, mm. university-age students, are really smart. They're getting upset about some things. They're overreacting to some things. Frankly, some of this debate is stupid, and we can't say that to them because it's harmful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> However, the world is heading in a better direction. They're mm. 
smarter than we were when we, this person was about my age. They're smarter than we were. They read more widely than we do. They have more friends from more different backgrounds than we did. And basically, if you work at a university, you can't help but be hopeful for the future, despite all of this. And that person basically summed up my view on this. Yeah, I, I think I, I, we're in a fatalistic moment, sure, but it will pass. Yeah, I think I think that, I think there's a lot of truth in that, that. That for all the issues that universities are having in the U.S. and the U.K. and other places, and, and obviously there's there's tons of issues the universities are having. The 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 vitality of the conversations that are happening in universities right now, especially with the quality of the students that we have and the, the diverse experience that the students that we have and the energy that our students have is, is I think, speaks, speaks uh, maybe to the potential for this you know, optimistic future or at least a, a future that's different than the present. Yeah, I, I, and, and I think that's true. And one thing they said, which also stuck with me, is we, the older generation, need to listen to them, but we also have to have the wisdom of our experience and to recognize, don't take debate and engage them in nonsense all the time. Mm. Let them have the debate they want to have. And and I think that's true, too. Right. That's true. Not everything is an ex. Not every question we talk about is an existential threat to the republic. Hopefully and not. Either the actual U.S. republic or the, the, the republic of the mind, the republic of letters. Sometimes, you know, we disagree, and that doesn't need to be the end of the world. All right, speaking about the end of the world, uh, it's time for the end of the podcast. Yes. Uh, um, <laughs> um, last drops. What you got, Frank? Uh, I want to, I've got two things, David. I want to remind people about the upcoming Fennel Lecture by Julia Late, which is on March 30th here at the university at 5.30. You can get your tickets you now. Get your tickets now. And or get them, get them later. Yeah, <laughs> preferably get them now. Um, and so so just a reminder about that, and you'll be hearing about that until the lecture happens. So, uh, But I also want to uh, talk about a book I'm really excited about, which is uh, David Waldstreicher, who's at the City University of New York, has just published a new, which I think will be definitive study, of Phyllis Wheatley, the... the um, uh, African-American poet or, um, uh, from the 18th century, and, um, and it's called The Odyssey of Phyllis Wheatley. It was published by FSG recently, got a big write-up in the New York Times. Uh, I haven't read it yet, but I'm really, really looking forward to this book. And David's a really interesting scholar, and Phyllis Wheatley is an excellent topic. Yes. So, yes. Am, am I correct in thinking that, that, that your man, TJ, didn't think very highly of her? Uh, yeah, Phyllis Wheatley figures in my 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 book because oh. T.J. wrote some very disparaging things and racist things about her in the notes on the state of Virginia. Interestingly, George Washington invited her to come visit him when he was um, with the Continental Army in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She wrote a poem, not one of her better works, it must be said. Mm. It's actually a terrible poem as a tribute to George Washington, uh, and she sent it to him. And so I've got a bit in the book where I contrast yes. both of their views okay. and responses to Phyllis Wheatley. So basically, Jefferson says words to the effect, and I don't have the quote at hand, you know, um, Africans are incapable of complex poetry mm. and, and so on, and he holds up Phyllis Wheatley as an example of bad black poetry. Mm. Uh, it's... It's not, his not better, one, one of his, his better, better moments. moments. It's not one of his yeah. better. But Washington, interestingly, at least officially responded quite positively to her. Wrote her a nice letter uh, in response okay. to this poem that she sent him and invited him yeah. to invited her to come and visit him. It's not clear whether she actually visited him or not. I don't know what David's going to say. That would be a fascinating. Too. Okay, all right. Anyway, great. So, so yeah, the Odyssey of Phyllis Wheatley by David Waldstrecker. David.
Your last drop? Uh, I want to recommend a book. Uh, it's called Monumental, Oscar Dunn and His Radical Fight uh, in Reconstruction, Louisiana. It's a graphic novel. It's actually, I guess, not technically a novel. It's it's history, but okay, it's in a graphic uh, format, so it's sort of a long comic book kind of thing. Uh, it's by Brian K. Mitchell, who's a historian, who I think wrote his dissertation on Oscar Dunn. Uh, Barrington Edwards, who is a, a illustrator who did all the illustrations, uh, and Nick Weldon, who works at the historic uh, New Orleans collection. Um, and I think it's a really interesting sort of example of writing history and doing history, um, you know, trying to, to use new medium, you know, and trying to use this graphic format as, as a way of communicating a very complex and important story that is not widely known. Uh, Oscar Dunn is, is a, was a black um, lieutenant general in Louisiana, uh, lieutenant governor, I should say, sorry, in, uh, in, in Louisiana, but not a figure that, that is very well known. Um, and, and this is a book that's trying to do that, you know, and I think it's as a, it's both a mode of scholarship, right? This is new knowledge being created, but it's also done in a way that isn't a, a monograph that, that's only appealing to, to, you know, 12 people, uh, like, you know, some monographs are. So I think that's, that's really great. And it's, uh, I think it came out of maybe a year and a half ago, and it's been sort of fun to sort of dip into that um, as, as a work of scholarship and, and as a, a work of, of art. Different ways to disseminate knowledge. knowledge. Yes, great. Until next week. Cheers, David. Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.